0: We're in the midst of a series of sermons from Luke's gospel. Over the past couple of weeks, and for a couple of more, we're focused on the theme of following Jesus. The largest section in Luke's gospel goes from chapter 9, verse 56, where it says Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. And chapter 19, when he arrives in Jerusalem. So this is the biggest chunk. It's called, very technical, the Lucane Travel Narrative. It's not a direct geographic travel. I mean, he's jumping all over. But it is a very intentional trip to Jerusalem. And Luke structures it not only to talk about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, but about our journey following Jesus. So at the heart of Luke's gospel is the notion of following Jesus. And he uses the actual disciples following Jesus to Jerusalem as a template For us, the reader, to reflect on our own lives, how we follow Jesus. Okay, And what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks, and we're going to do for a few more, it's different than what we often do in church. Often in church, um, a little more than half the year, I'll take a passage of Scripture and we just kind of go through that passage. But over the last few weeks, and for a couple more, we're going to pull back and we're going to look at themes. And we've been looking at this theme of following Jesus. How do we follow him? And what are the key issues that Luke lays out for us who also follow Jesus? So a couple of weeks ago, we saw the first one is that Luke, in Luke's gospel, Jesus takes very seriously how we start the journey. That it's crucial to begin well. Right, You can reflect on your own life in trips, right? Tristan and his brothers got trapped on Mount Washington. Is that the right one? Somebody help me. I don't even see Tristan anymore. Mount Washington, right? It was like with wind chill factor, negative 40. They took a wrong turn. It was a blizzard. They were on the mountain for many, many hours. And through the prayers of the saints and a great miracle, the rangers found them. And if they hadn't started well with the right clothing, they wouldn't be here today. A lot of people get started in the Christian life poorly and they stall out. It's like a woman in birth for 72 hours. There are a lot of people in our churches who are not fully converted. They've started the journey, they've started the birthing process. But because the church comes along and sanctions them saved, they kind of stop the conversion process. So we saw several weeks ago that beginning well requires certain initial acts. Faith, repentance, self-denial, an actual personal relationship with Jesus. Oftentimes what we see in people's lives who grow up in church is that throughout their childhood and adolescence in their early college years, this is what they're doing. They're converting. Now, I'm not saying this ever stops, but you have to achieve a minimum threshold in all of these categories in order to be born again, in order to be well converted. And then you move on and you keep living into them. And some of us, we've stalled out at one or another of these. And we need to wake up. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. Then we looked at the role of the Holy Spirit. This was last week. We saw over and over in Luke's gospel that Jesus offers us life in the Spirit. And this is one of the most basic issues when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. Next week, we're going to look at at the third of five themes Jesus keeps circling around, keeps returning to when he helps us understand what it means to follow him. Next week, we're going to look at the issue of prayer. That prayer is fundamental to following Jesus. It's one of the big fives that he keeps going on about. The week after that, we'll look at the fifth, the final fundamental issue that Jesus lays out for us when it comes to following him. And that's our relationship to the poor. You can't get away from that in Luke's gospel. But this week, our focus is on not our relationship to the poor, but our relationship to money. Now these things, beginning well, life in the spirit, prayer, relationship to the poor, and relationship to money, these are the five things that Jesus returns to over and over and over relentlessly when it comes to us following him. I mean, he gets all up in our business, right? It's very concrete. This week we're going to talk about money, wealth, and possessions. Now two quick observations. First of all, When you read Luke's gospel, you will notice that Jesus is relentlessly focused on money, on wealth, on possessions. It's pervasive in his teachings. Secondly, although Jesus consistently speaks about money, he doesn't speak about money consistently. He's all over the board. So if you were to ask the question, what is the Christian approach to possessions? The answer is not straightforward. For example, in chapter 18, verse 22, Jesus tells the rich young ruler, sell all that you have and distribute the proceeds to the poor. 1822. And then in the very next story, chapter 19, with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus doesn't sell everything. He gives a good chunk to the poor, and Jesus treats him like that's okay. In chapter 5, we're told that Levi leaves everything to follow Jesus, and the next thing we're told is that he throws a, throws a huge and lavish party. So, what does leaving everything mean? It clearly doesn't mean leaving everything in this literal way because if so, Zacchaeus could have never thrown. A, do you know how expensive alcohol is? Do you know how expensive a feast is for a whole group of people? Look, Luke is, Jesus is all over the board in Luke's gospel. And, and, he, and it's always this kind of very complex phenomenon. The point is that the way we handle money as Jesus' followers is not simplistic. It is not simple and straightforward. However, Jesus does give us some bracing guidelines. First, in Luke's gospel, our possessions, our money, is not a separate compartment in our lives to our spiritual life. Following Jesus and spending money, it all belongs to the same arena of our lives. What we're doing here this morning, confessing our sins, singing songs to God, that's the same arena in God's eyes as how you spend your money. When you're at a store spending money, that's not a separate category to God. It's not a separate mode of living to God than when you're kneeling and confessing sin, or standing and singing praises, or coming to the Lord's table and receiving communion. Jesus allows for no segregation of our life into spiritual and secular, church and world faith and money. Your relationship to your stuff and your relationship to the God to God, it's all mixed up. It's all together. Your relationship to your possessions, to your money, to earning money, will never escape the scrutiny of the gospel. And this isn't because wealth is inherently bad and poverty is inherently good. No. In in Mary's song, the Magnificat, We saw this a couple of months ago. Luke chapter 1 verse 53. Mary is in her praise to God. She clearly identifies that both the hungry and the well fed need God. And both are recipients of God's grace. Luke's gospel and the whole Bible refuses to demonize the wealthy. And valorize the poor. In fact some of the greatest heroes in the Bible. Are the wealthiest people in their communities. You can't get away from this. Jesus walks around this earth. And some of his key followers in Luke's gospel. Are wealthy women. That he never critiques for their wealth. And yet. There's a second guideline. So the first guideline Luke gives us is that your money is not separate from your spiritual life. The second guideline is this. Money has a mysterious power. We heard this from Jesus in our gospel reading. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. Now, I think in the fall I'm going to come back and preach on that whole parable Jesus told about the guy who builds the barns? It only works if you understand the social environment Jesus told that story in. And if you don't understand it, you can get really weird in how you view barns and bank accounts. Now, I'm going to That's not the purpose of the sermon this morning. I'm making a larger point this morning. I hope to come back in the fall and talk very particularly about how that particular parable travels to us today. But here's what we do see in Luke 12, 13 to 34. Money gets power in our life through the way it shapes our time our attention and our devotion. Money gets power, real power and traction in our lives by how it shapes our time, our attention and our devotion. And in our society, this is quite radical because our society takes it as obvious that the pursuit of money, of wealth, should determine how we allocate our time, our attention, and our devotion. College students, just think about this whole thing you're involved in. You go to college, spend an enormous amount of time and attention and devotion so you can get the ticket to then doing that for the rest of your life. And you're indoctrinated in this. But we've got to be very, very careful here. Jesus makes it very clear. Luke 12, verse 34. Listen to his words again. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And remember, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart. But if your treasure is with money, no matter how much you go to church, confess your sins, sing your songs, take communion... No matter how much you do all of this stuff, if your treasure is money, your heart is there. Chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says this. No one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other. Or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then just in case we don't understand, he's talking about money here. You cannot serve God and money. So it's not that money is bad. It's that when money gets in the driver's seat, it is wicked. It has this mysterious power. In other words, master your stuff. Or your stuff will master you. Master your money, or it will master you. It's a very powerful thing. You cannot be, and this doesn't, this has nothing to do with being rich or poor. You can be a poor idolater of money, and you can be a rich non idolater. Money is power, wealth is power, possessions are power. No matter how much or how little of it you have, it has this mysterious power. Jesus warns people far more about greed than he does about sex. That doesn't mean sex doesn't matter to him. It means that we've got to take the power of this thing seriously. You can be in an idolatrous, broken, twisted, subservient relationship to money no matter how much debt you're in, no matter how much income you've had. But either way, whether you're rich or poor, if you are like that, if you're greedy, if you haven't mastered money but it has mastered you, that is a form of worship. And you will become like whatever or whomever you worship. That's a fundamental law of being human. If you're giving your love and your trust and your obedience to money, Jesus teaches us here in the the gospel, it will distort you. It'll twist you. That's what's going on with this whole story I read earlier about the guy who built the barns. Look, if you understand in that culture, what's happened is he's given his love and his trust and his obedience to money and he's become a vile creature. He's become Gollum. He's been twisted. He's been distorted. If you're trusting money to give you control over life, to give you safety and security, maybe you don't even spend money very much. Maybe you trust money so much by keeping it tucked away in a bank account, being very wise and prudent and stingy so that you feel secure. Maybe you trust money By trusting it to give you the things that elevate your social standing. So some people trust money by saving it. And some people trust money by spending it. In our community... The bigger challenge is on the ladder. We live in a community that is not flashy by and large. And the idolatry of money in this community is primarily about trusting its savings to secure you against the whims and vicissitudes of life. But make no doubt about it, that can be just as idolatrous as an ostentatious lifestyle. Some people love money. You daydream about it. You fantasize about new ways to make money, new possessions to buy. You end up looking with jealousy on those who have nicer things than you or more money than you. You give your obedience to money. You use money to secure access to the things in life that give you an identity. Use money to have power over others or to get their approvals. There are a thousand contradictory ways that the power of mammon can get into our lives. It's funny. I've heard nearly every sin I can imagine confessed to me. Twice I've had murder confessed to me. That was unconfessed anywhere else. Once was in a prison, a guy awaiting trial on murder. And... It's funny, the things that people say to me, which I guess it just... Yeah, it's one of those things. I have never had anybody confess to me greed. That's one of the powers of money. Is that it flies so low on the radar. Isn't that obvious? That I, I live and work in the wealthiest group of people... That have ever exist, existed. Americans. And I've never once had one come and confess greed to me. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's got this mysterious power. So the first guideline is that money is spiritual. It is a part of your spiritual life. Thinking about it. Preparing to earn it. This is spiritual stuff. And the second guideline is that either we master our money and possessions or they master us. Now, for the rest of the sermon, I want us to take this second issue seriously. This idea that either it will master us or we master it. Luke 12 verse 15, Jesus said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. In other words, covetousness can be in the form of stinginess. It can be in the form of... Enormous spending. It can be in lots of different forms. And Jesus says, be on guard against it. Why? Because it's sneaky. It's tricky. We've got to be proactive. Against this mysterious power that can enslave us. If we're not on guard, it will do that. In reading Luke's gospel... We see there are basically two ways of being on guard against this profoundly dehumanizing power of money. Two ways that Jesus uses in his multiple engagements with people when it comes to money and possessions and wealth. Two ways to be on guard. The the first way, the most fundamental way that we begin our resistance to the distorting power of greed is in our worship. Worship is war on greed. The most fundamental way to combat the negative power of money is to worship the one who is the true God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Because this God is generous. And we become like whatever or whomever we worship. When Israel worshipped the gods of the nations, she became like the nations. Bloodthirsty, oppressive, full of deceit and violence. One day when you have time, read about this in Jeremiah chapter 27. And it's just not in our Christian heritage. We see it in Islam. Muslims worship Allah, a power, rather than a person. And it's not infrequent for this to show up in the politics and the policies of those who embrace Islam. It's not just Christians. It's not just Muslims. Western humanists worship man. And the result is that every degrading whim of the human heart is honored and exalted and disseminated through the organs of mass media. This is what our Old Testament reading pointed out. Psalm 115 verses 4 to 8. After describing idols as figures that have every organ of sense, the psalmist writes, those who make them will become like them. We become like whatever or whomever we worship. If you worship sex, you will increasingly define yourselves in terms of sex. You will be defined by your sexual preference, by your sexual practices, by your sexual past histories. And you'll increasingly treat people As actual or potential sex objects. If you worship power. You'll come to define yourself in terms of power. And you'll treat people as either collaborators or competitors or pawns. If you worship money. You will increasingly define yourself. In terms of money. And increasingly treat people as either creditors, debtors, partners, or customers. Rather than as human beings. So back to Psalm 115. When we worship the idol of money, we become speechless, deaf, blind, unfeeling, and crippled. But the good news is these... The maladies that come from worshiping another God in Psalm 115. The good news is that those are exactly the people Jesus heals in the gospel. The deaf, the blind, the speechless. The most fundamental way to combat the dehumanizing power of money is to worship the one and only true God because the true God revealed in Jesus Christ is generous and life-giving. And we become like whatever or whomever we worship. So when it comes to following Jesus, in Luke 12, verse 15, he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. And the first way that we get proactive against this mysterious power is worship. Worship is the first act of our holy war against greed. And our second, very simply, live lower than your income. Live lower than your income allows you to live. You see, in the Bible, it's not a sin to be wealthy. God makes Christians in every economic class. It's not inherently sinful to live in a wealthy neighborhood. And it's not inherently virtuous to live in a poor neighborhood. But Christians should always aim for the bottom end of their particular economic bracket. where do I get this? In Luke's gospel, it comes up in two primary ways. This idea that the way we stand on guard, first I said is through our worship, the second is by living lower than our income would allow us to. The second one comes up in Luke's gospel in two ways. The first is Jesus makes the tithe a non-negotiable part of our budget. Turn to Luke chapter 11. Look at verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees. For you you tithe. Tithe means give 10%. You tithe mint and rue and every herb. And you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. for 2000 years god had insisted that the jewish people give god back 10% of their income it's called a tithe there are parts of the old testament law that god said we're released from you can shave your sideburns you can eat crawfish my wife thinks you can get tattoos. <laughs> you don't have to slaughter an animal. Men don't have to get circumcised. These are all clearly identified in the New Testament. But the New Testament holds the line on don't murder. Still applies. Don't commit adultery. Still applies. And all through the New Testament, just like here, it holds the line On tithe. If God had changed that, we would have seen a fierce debate over it, just like we saw a fierce debate over the food laws and circumcision in the pages of the New Testament. Here's Jesus telling the religious leaders, it's right to tithe, but it is wrong to refuse to go beyond the tithe when love and justice demand it. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, look, guys, you're holding to the tithe like that lets you off of giving anything more. No, that's just the training wheels. That's just the floor. you got to go beyond that. God owns everything. And he tells us, give away 10% of it. Now, here's where you're going to think I've got a vested interest. And so this is all a setup, but it's not. He says, give 10% of it to the church. Now, you can cynically think, "Uh, I've set all of this up just to ensure my salary. I haven't. I promise you. God writes my paycheck. You don't. I've walked away from a church before and a paycheck before. I don't trust in you. I trust in the Lord. So... You can believe that, but it would be cynical. But live life among us and you'll know that's not how our church operates. Our church, it's it's remarkable how this church operates. But there's still no getting around this. And what we see in the Old Testament is that giving God 10% of our money off the top, up front, the Bible calls it first fruits, is just like us giving God Sunday's. We give him the first day of the week and we refuse to produce and work as an act of faith that in the next six we'll get everything done we need to get done. And so Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says a fundamental mode of trusting God, verse 7 and 8, is by giving him the first fruits, the tithe. And this is what teaches our hearts not to trust our money. Look, if you struggle with anxiety, the most powerful over money, the most powerful mechanism God has given us to combat that anxiety, which is a form of worshiping money because you're putting your trust in money, the most fundamental way to to fight that is by the tithe. God owns everything. We're like investment managers. We're not to use the resources of our client, God, in ways that violate his values. And his purposes. When it comes to our stuff and our money. We are to be controlled by the thought. That it is God's money in my bank account. Look Ed Good's a financial planner. He has to sign all these papers about how he's going to have integrity. How he's not going to violate his clients trust. If Zeke were to go to Ed and say. Hey you've got access to all these funds you manage. Can you use some of them for you know, X, Y, or Z, could, if, if Ed's managing Ed, Ed Cash's funds, could he take Ed's money without talking to Ed and just go and use it to spend on Zeke's predilections? No. And you can't do that with any of your money either. God owns it all. You're the financial planner for the, the slice of the pie that comes into your house every week or month. And you have to honor your client's views you're God's investment manager and God says one of the things that you are obligated to do is to tithe now this is a pretty good gig I mean what what if Ed had a client that said all you got to do is give me 10% of the dividends you keep 90 now that would be a career to go in God says to you give in this way, it's a privilege to invest the master's money in his causes. And 10% is just the floor. Arrange your life so that as the years go by, you can give more. You know, John Wesley had this remarkable discipline... I think it was at 28 pounds, British pounds, a year. That's where he set his living level. And as his income grew over the years, this was a couple of hundred years ago, he kept living at that level. And at the peak of his earning power, he was, he was making like over 1,000 pounds a year, which is it's a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year. And he continued to live on the equivalent of like $33,000 a year. So one practical way to do this is, is when you get raises and stuff, you don't always have to raise your standard of living. Now, that doesn't mean, again, you can't live in a higher economic bracket. What I'm saying is you've got to find ways of structuring your life So that you grow more generous. So that you can give more in the future. Be creative. Be joyful about it. That's Wesley's way. It doesn't have to be your way. But that was his way. The opening inscription to Lewis Hyde's book. The book is called The Gift. Is this. What is good is given back. The greatest thing we can do with the truest gift. Is to share it. And you know this because this happens to you. There are moments in your life where you just can't wait to share with others. Where you just long to invite them in to the joy of your greatest gift. This is what we do at weddings, right? We invite all of our friends into the joy of this gift of love. This is, this is, I love to cook. The other day, Leanne comes over to visit with Janelle and, and I'd cook something. I said, Leanne, come back, come back and um, it was a shrimp bisque and uh, it changed her life she's become a better person <laughs> we took a picture of it and, and texted it to her brother who's always wanting to know if Leanne gets more than him or not and then, and then Micah no, Josiah had some and then we sent a bowl home I just couldn't wait to share this thing with other people don't you do this with some of your gifts you just can't wait to share it God gives to us and a primary way we give back to God is by sharing Our stuff, our money. And when we do this, we're fighting against the God of mammon and we're fighting to become characterized by generosity. So think about it this way when a church comes together to worship and we take up the offering, it's not an intrusion, it's not a shift in gears. It's not a change from kneeling and confessing our sin and standing and praising God. No, giving our tithes. This is the spiritual life. And look at it this way. When we take the offering, this is not self-interest and greed. It's not the church becoming mercenary. No. When we bring wealth into the house of God and offer it to God... We're continuing what God's people have always done. They never came to worship empty-handed. They always came with their wealth. Animals, Old Testament, that's your wealth. When we take up the offering, this is the primary anti-mammon moment in worship. This is the primary act of resistance in our worship service to the God of Mammon. This and praising a God who's generous and He makes us like Him. It's the moment when we open our hands to let go of our goods and acknowledge that they are God's goods. A second. A second way that Jesus, in Luke's gospel, strikes at the heart of greed and covetousness. So, we become like what we worship. And second, live lower than your income allows. And the first practical way to live lower is to start out by living 10% lower. When I mean, Janelle, right, did any of you get your financial contribution that, I mean, don't raise your hands, but how many of you looked at that and thought, man, what we could have done with that this year? My porch is falling apart on my house. It's this rotten board, and I think when I saw our contribution, it would have fixed that. See, what Janelle and I have done is we've just taken this line in the stand. We're... We're going to live this much lower than 100% of our income would allow us. The second way that we do this is that people sell things that they love and they give the proceeds to the poor. That's a way to, that Jesus says we live a little bit lower. Now this, this comes up Throughout Luke's gospel, some version of this, right? You can think of Zacchaeus, you can think of the rich young ruler, you can think of Levi, you can th- think of this in a lot of places. Luke wrote another book in the Bible. Anybody know what other book in the Bible Luke wrote? Acts. Acts, right? And so Acts is a reflection on how the disciples who follow Jesus, and that's basically all they do in the book of Luke, they're very rarely actors. In Luke's gospel, they're passive, they're receiving his teaching, they're following him and watching him. But the, the book of Acts is when these followers become actors. And they put into practice all that they've learned in following Jesus. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 45, we see the first description of how they lived their lives... These earliest followers of Jesus. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and fellowship. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions. And belongings. And distributing the proceeds to all. As any had need. Over in chapter 4. Very similar Summary of their life together. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And laid it at the apostles feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. And we see this kind of thing going on throughout the New Testament. Which which indicates... They didn't do it all at once, because then it would have suddenly stopped, right? Then there would have come a moment where they're no longer selling stuff. No, this plays out the same way Luke, uh, Levi's selling his stuff plays out. It's that people are willing to do this, and they do it. It's that we love people in this, it, that we love people outside of the family. The way we love people in our family. And th- this is one of the most striking things Jesus does in Luke's gospel. Is he's constantly saying to a society that's built around a patron-client way of relating to the outsider. He says, scrap that. Instead, relate to the outsider the way you do your own family. Which is you value them more than your stuff. And you would readily disadvantage yourself in order to advantage the needy person in your family. I mean, who among us wouldn't do that? right? Who among us hasn't made enormous sacrifices for our children, our, friend, our close friends, our parents, our brothers and sisters? So look, here's a very practical way that we learn to follow Jesus well. It's how we relate to our money and our stuff. Worship a God who's generous tithe and here's a challenge we don't talk about very much sell something and give the proceeds to somebody in need do you know how remarkably freeing that is do you know how that strikes at the core of the power that your stuff has over you It's a way of saying to your stuff, your mama, I own you. I will do with you as I please. You don't own me. Now, look, some of you might think that I already give a lot. But look, what if you just found something you really enjoyed? And you did this. Can you imagine the effect that's going to have on your life? So maybe for some of you over the rest of Lent, start looking around at something that That you can sell that actually takes a bite out of your life. I mean we could ratchet it up. I'm not going to say that. I mean I'm not inviting you to do this. Maybe some of you will want to do this. We could even ratchet it up another level right. Because they took it. And then it says they laid it at the apostles feet to use as they wanted. That's an even further strike isn't it. What if I were to sell something I really loved and then take it to CJ and say, CJ, you use this with no strings attached to help the needy you know of. Do you see how that removes me even one step further from, from being controlled by it? Some of you just, I mean, some of you know this. You don't like giving to the church. You like giving in your own manners. I mean, Janelle and I, our basic practice is the tithe goes to the church and we give more than that to to needs in the community. And we let control of the tithe go to the church and everything we give over in that, we kind of have control over. We pick and choose. Going to give to the building fund, going to give to this need, going to give to this organization or that organization. So Janelle and I, when we plan our budget every year, we, we... we start out with 10% and we use that as a, as a floor below which we're not willing to go in, what we, in which we give to God through the church. And then we add several more percentage on top of that that we give away in other ways. In the Bible, that's called a tithe and an offering. The offering is free will and it's totally up to you. That's all those passages in the New Testament talking about giving your own heart as you own set aside. In the New Testament, that's picking up the free will offering language from the Old Testament. Now, go back to where we started. Money's not bad. Stuff's not bad. Wealth is not bad. Stinginess is. A lack of generosity is. Refusing God's obligations on your money is. Money has a mysterious power. It is sneaky and it can get into our hearts if we're not diligent. Diligent. A very wise pastor in New York, his name's Tim Keller. Um, some of these things I've talked about, he's helped open my eyes to. One very per- thing in particular that I find helpful for our church. And I'll conclude with this. This passage we heard Zelda read. Ephesians four twenty-eight. This passage helps us see that it is possible for Christians to give too much money away. And to be honest, for most people in our church, this is what you really need to hear. Our church is embarrassingly generous and sacrificial in its giving. It it really is. It's astounding what people in this church give. Ephesians 4.28 This shows us that a christian should keep enough money that they can live a safe and healthy life and that they don't become a burden on others and that they continue to do good three things right let the thief no longer steal but what what does it say anybody already turned to Ephesians 4:28 to work make enough so that he can then what give to others I think buried in this, we can say that Christians should not give so much that they can no longer live a safe and healthy life. They should not give so much that they become a burden to others. And they should not give so much that they can no longer give. You've got to find this. Le- this you've, you are responsible to make enough money, he says, so that you stop taking. You're able to cover your lifestyle and give. There are many people who have made or inherited a substantial fund of money. And if they give it all away, they might do less good in the long run than if they give it away slowly, allowing it to continually grow new dividends and earnings. So God tells us give 10%. That's the floor. Start there and work to add to that, to arrange your life and your standard of living so that you can go beyond that without hurting your health, ...without becoming a burden to others... ...without reneging on your financial obligations... ...and without undermining your ability to live and minister... ...among those whom you work. And then sacrificially go beyond that. Our church is enormously generous. Look, some of you might be thinking... ...wow, this is the weirdest sermon I've ever heard. At one moment, I think he's telling me to give. At another moment, it sounds like I'm okay... What I know about most of you is that you are okay. I really mean that. I know what you give. I look at the records. It's a primary indicator of, of where you are with God. It's not the only indicator, but it's a, it's a key indicator. And if I can't handle that, if you're worried if I'm going to pick friends based on this, that, or the other, well, then if you're that worried about my character, please talk to me and pray for me and and find out if that's true in any area of my life. I promise you, I don't treat people who give more or less more favorably or less favorably. If you're close to me, you know that. You don't write my paychecks, God does. It is astonishing. What our church does and some of you might ought to back off and some of you need to grow in this area and here we all are people at all different stages of our spiritual life and some of us have enormous strength and character in the giving compartment and it's broken in other areas it's not the only indicator it, it doesn't lead to judgment of each other Our lives are big, and there's lots of factors and lots of strengths and lots of brokenness and lots of victories and lots of lack of victories. And we should praise God and thank God for all that he does among us. If you're one of those who is giving generously, then thank God for his grace among your life and be diligent because the power of mammon is sneaky, and you're not off the hook. And if you're someone who doesn't give generously, could it be that you're enslaved to the God of wealth and you just didn't realize it? If so, follow Jesus. He'll lead you home. Let's pray.